Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I recently spoke with Tony Visa from ISC Squared, and we dove into his area of expertise and discussed his role as a security ambassador and what his vision is in that role and what he plans to achieve. We covered a variety of topics, including people taking more of an interest to work in the cyber field, as well as his opinion on certs in the industry and how to avoid those who are claiming to be from a non-certified organization. If you'd like to know more about Tony's journey, then please keep on listening. Tony, I've known you for a number of years, so I think you've definitely seen my journey progress in this industry as well as me seeing yours. And I'm really interested to dive into the work that you're doing now because you are doing some really cool stuff. But before we get started on that, we like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can you walk our listeners through where you started to where you are now? Sure, Carissa. Always a pleasure to uh, speak with you. And uh, absolutely, it's been interesting following each other's journeys over the years. Where I got started in in all of this uh, was at school. So um, to paint a picture, I did school a number of years ago. I'm not that old, but I'm not that young. Um, When I started school, there was only a single computer uh, in the classroom. And this was about year two in in the uh, mid-80s. The teacher asked us as a class, and I was about eight or nine years old, does anyone know how to use this thing? And I hadn't the faintest idea. I stuck my hand up right away because I did want to learn how to use it and said, yes, miss, I know how to use it. And I ended up becoming the person who, who looked after this computer. Um, fast forward a few. <laughs> looked fast, after it. I love yes, it. Yes, literally. It was, a, it was an Apple II, I think it was. Um, and yeah. I was the only person who, who knew how to use it because I, I learned the hard way, jumped in and, and, and got a start. Uh, and then moved on from there, um, ended up studying at, at school, did computer science at university and, uh, and, and where I am today. So it's been a long journey. <laughs> and so how did you sort of move from computer science then into the security space? What did that transition look like? Yeah, look, it, it happened a number of years ago. So I was quite fortunate to have done some study in Silicon Valley and it became apparent to me, I'd say about seven or eight years ago now, um, that cybersecurity was going to be a, a big area going forward. Now, a lot of the work that I did in the past, there were significant elements of cybersecurity as part of that, um, just by virtue of, of my network work, uh, system administrator work and the like. Um, the computer science background as well obviously brought a lot of that in, into play. But it, I don't think it was considered to be a, a separate discipline as such until I'd say seven or eight years ago where there was a big focus on, on cybersecurity. And to me, it just made sense that it would be an area that would just get bigger and bigger in, in time. And mm-hmm. I threw myself at that space and, um, and decided to really hone in on, on my skills and talent there. And I know that you've held a number of roles in this space, uh, working in consulting and, and things like that. So let's let's talk about the security ambassador role that you currently hold. What what does that sort of look like? What are you doing there? Sure. So I'm an ambassador for New South Wales government's uh, cybersecurity innovation node, uh, and what I do there is uh, go out to schools, speak to um, young people about cybersecurity, potentially careers, uh, what they can look at in terms of you know where they want to go with their lives after school, um, and also uh, do some work with some of the um, parents and schools around cyber safety for children. Um, we have a program with uh, an affiliated organisation that, that we work with uh, that's a not-for-profit um, and a charity in the US, so we actually do a fair bit of work in that space already. So I also extend some of that out to 
um, to schools, parents uh, and, and kids as well. So it's quite a varied role, um, but really it's about promoting the, the idea of cybersecurity and what that means to people. Do you think parents are sort of concerned because perhaps when they were growing up, the stuff that's around now wasn't really around? Do you think they find that quite concerning for their child growing up, considering suicide rates are on the increase due to things like cyberbullying? What's your point of view on, on a parent's perspective? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm the parent uh, to two children uh, and they've grown up around IT. Uh, I think that there's there's a number of different considerations. Uh, the technology's there. It's not going to go anywhere. So as parents, I think they need to make that uh, realisation very quickly that it's something that needs to be managed rather than something that you can say, well, no, you're not going to use and you're not going to do. And I think that um, it would be very limiting for parents to, to, let's say, restrict access to devices. That being said, I think that parents have a, the ultimate responsibility to be able to manage that usage accordingly. Um, one of the biggest problems these days that, that I see with parents is that, that you know, they're expecting their kids not to use um, phones, iPads and the like, but then what they're doing is they're giving their kids unrestricted access. They're at, at home having dinner, um, you know, using a telephone, you know, while they eat, and that's setting a really poor example. So I think that parents do really need to um, make sure that what they're doing in front of their kids is actually a good example. And what are you sort of planning to achieve with doing this role? What's the overall vision? So the overall vision is that, you know, as, as you alluded to earlier in, in regards to things like suicide rates and, and self-harm and the like, we really want kids to understand that, you know, cybersecurity and, and bullying and the like. I grew up around bullying in, in the playground and, you know, that was one thing. You knew the person who was the bully. These days, you know, an, an entire planet can be a bully effectively through, through cyber. Um, so it's about managing that and changing people's perceptions about what they read, what they see, not taking things too personally, you know, um, particularly. At, at a young age where, where children are really impressionable um, and you need to have good role models as adults to be able to make sure that kids temper the view of what they see online with what is actually important in their lives and, and not take it too seriously. So do you see the suicide rate going down in terms of the cyberbullying thing? Because again, like we all know, there's no real regulation for the internet and it's hard to sort of reprimand people accordingly at this current stage. So what would be your perspective on that decreasing? I, I wish that it wouldn't exist at all, and I think every uh, every person out there hopes to see a world one day where we're not seeing these issues. Sadly, they're there. Sadly, it's happening, and we are starting to see uh, legislation take place around where people are sharing intimate images of, of partners uh, without their consent and them being penalised really heavily with jail sentences. So I think as we see more of that and people start to appreciate that this is a significant problem that can affect people's lives quite intimately and, and often tragically, I think we're going to see a much greater awareness. And I think in time, we will see that drop. So, but it's a slow process, but it can't happen soon enough in my view. Okay, so let's move along to your current day-to-day -day role as well. And I know that you're the Director of Advocacy for ISC Squared for APAC. And I know you have come on board and taken a different approach from what you and I have talked about on where you believe mm. ISC Squared needs to be in this region. So can you walk me through what is happening and the trajectory you're imagining? Sure, sure. So what we're seeing in, in the region and globally is we're seeing a massive skills gap uh, in cybersecurity and there is an awfully uh, big gap uh, in the region of about 2.1 million cybersecurity individuals over the next couple of years. And we're simply not 
creating a, enough professionals out there that are skilled, certified and qualified to be able to meet the demand. And as a result of that, we're seeing these big breaches where literally there's a, there's a new one happening every day. And this is impacting people's lives. So what we, uh, our mantra, our organization's mantra, and, and you know, we're a not-for-profit uh, industry association, is um, to see a safer, safer, more secure cyber world. So we work to that effect. And, and what we're trying to do there is really uh, encourage the next generation of people, men and women, um, to pursue cybersecurity as a career, um, adopt the right skills and the right mentality around making sure that information is kept safe. Now, I know that there's been several discussions online that you probably would have seen yourself. Why do you think there is a slow adoption to cybersecurity? Because 2.1 million, that's quite a large number. And I was being someone the other day that there's still a lot of people going to law school and they just can't really get jobs. So why do you think the adoption is sort of slow from your perspective? So I think it's slower because there's this awful perception in the industry that uh, to be a cybersecurity professional, you need to be a hacker who sits in front of a computer with a hoodie on their head, and and all you do all day is 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 generate that that stereotype. And as a result of that, um, we're not attracting a diverse group of people into the industry. The reality is that cybersecurity is actually a lot more than just that. And there's a lot of roles in, for example, governance, risk, compliance where you can have a, a diverse uh, group of people, um, women particularly, who are fantastic at those sorts of roles, and because of the perceptions and, and the stereotypes that exist, they don't consider cybersecurity as a, as a career option mm. for them, even though there are roles there for them and, and that don't mm. involve anything to do with those stereotypes. So breaking that down and, and encouraging um, different uh, people with different levels of skills and interests into an, in, into an industry that's only growing and it's only going to become more and more critical um, is, is a good approach in my view. I agree with you. That's sort of the main uh, consensus when people are explaining that there's this, there's this fallacy around the stereotype of what a cybersecurity professional looks like. What I'm keen to understand when I am given the opportunity is, as you would probably be well aware, there is talk in the industry that if you're not the most technical person, it kind of feels that there's this, well, you're not technical, therefore you don't matter. Why do you think that's a thing? Because I feel that there's a lot of room for all different types of people, but there's still this old school mentality that you're not a hacker, you don't know anything, you're not really relevant. What What's your approach and response to people operating like that? Yeah, it, it's a really good question and it's a really interesting one. I think that there's a, a lot of uh, sociological um, reasons for that. And I think that, you know, I, I look back at my own uh, life when I was at school and I was, uh, you know, for, for, for um, want of a better word, I, I, I fitted that stereotype. And, you know, we weren't the, the, the most well-liked, the most popular kids at school purely because of the fact that, you know, we were the nerdy, geeky types. So I think that it was almost it almost became a, a self-preservation mechanism that, you know, mm. we treated other people as, oh, well, you don't know, you don't, you know, you, you, know you, you don't know anything about cybersecurity or IT or whatever it might be. Um, and that has sort of perpetuated uh, as as you you go on in life, and and I had a massive um, you know realization in my in my mid twenties um, that taking that approach is probably not going to work <laughs> with with general people. If you tell people that they're stupid, it's usually not going to get a good uh, reaction. So the best thing to do is to acknowledge that you can't be an expert in all areas. Um, no. The the examples that I use, I, I say to people all the time. I go, look, I'm not a car mechanic. Um, and if I take my car to a, a mechanic and the mechanic uh, looks at me and says, look, when was the last time you brought your car in for service? And I said, oh, three years ago. Um, and he turns around and goes, well, that was stupid that you didn't bring your car in every six months as you're meant to. Chances are I'm never going to go see that mechanic ever again, right? Mm -hmm. Yet as cyber professionals, we seem to think that we can get away with <laughs> that and, and somehow people are going to like us and listen to us. So um, changing that is, is really, really critical and, and appreciating that people um, will make mistakes when it comes to cyber 
And professionals will make mistakes when it comes to cyber and security. And that's fine because we are humans and you're going to do that. Um, that's my view in that space because I think that it is a big um, problem. I, I often joke to, to my brethren in the space that, you know, we're not the party, uh, we're not the, the lifeblood of, of the party. We just have to accept that <laughs> and, and understand that that's where we fit in and try to be as relatable as we can to people we're trying to protect. So that, that's a really interesting point because, like you said earlier, there is 2.1 million people that we need to help service this industry. But what's really enticing people that to want to work in this space, if that's the sort of backlash they're getting, because maybe they do want to work in a GRC role, but so-and-so over here is getting sort of uh, arced up because he wants to, to think that he's more important than someone else because he's the most technical guy on the earth. But doesn't really solve our problem because we do have certain people, not all people, going around and not really helping us solve the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in time those sorts of people will, will make themselves unrelatable and there'll be people out there that can make themselves quite relatable um, mm -hmm. that will in, in turn attract those people that, that will actually want to work with them. Um, so I think that in time the, the problem will solve itself out. Um, we're just at a tipping point right now where, you know, we're trying to, um, of course, attract the right sorts of people. And, I mean, people out there, there's fantastic role models, men and women, who come from that background um, that, that are not traditionally cyber security focused and they're learning the skills and they're becoming certified and qualified. And as, as a result, they, they're, they're really doing some good work. Um, Carissa, you're one of them, by the way, <laughs> to, to, to give you a Thank little you. bit of um, you know, insight. Yeah, so, so and that, that attracts more people into the industry. And as long as they understand how to become qualified and experienced and how to look up to the right mentors and role models, the future's bright. And I think that those people who are still thinking old school, they'll alienate themselves in time, I think. I think that's a really good approach to that. Okay, so let's jump into the certification side of things. Now, I know that you and I have had a few uh, discussions about the uptake towards uh, IC Squared and how, and how you guys are helping address that gap. Can you explain what this means and what this could mean to an executive looking to upskill their team or to an individual looking to take the initiative? Sure, sure. So as you can imagine, there's a, there's a bunch of different ways that you can become um, a cybersecurity professional. A lot of people um, don't ever do certifications. A lot of people do a university degree and don't do certifications. A lot of people do a bunch of different things. The way that I explain certification and particularly certifications that we do is, and I'll use an aviation analogy, if you look at a pilot, a pilot will learn to fly a plane and they'll do what's called a private pilot license and they will, um, in that, do all of the uh, technical work, all of the theoretical work in order to understand what aviation is all about, you know, what the wings do, what the tail does, how to, you know, land, how to take off, and, and that teaches them all of the fundamental skills to be able to do that. But as you can imagine, they only get to fly a single, you know, Cessna or a little small plane, but it gives them all the fundamental understanding of that. And that is what I equate our certifications to. When you then start looking at um, the larger planes, the A380s and the 747s that we all get to fly when we go on holidays, um, you, don't, you don't fly one of those planes without becoming certified in that particular type of aircraft. Um, and they're what I would term the, the vendor certifications, the HPs, the Cisco's, the Microsoft's, the, the AWS's, et cetera, et cetera, right? But underpinning all of that is the theoretical knowledge um, as well as the experience in actually understanding, you know, how to fly an aircraft in the first instance. And that's where our certifications come in. And that's where it's really important to note that the certifications that we do require you to maintain those certifications. So it's not just a once-off, you, you get it and, you know, you're CISSP for life. 
you need to commit to educational input through uh, CPEs and mm-hmm. demonstrate that over the course of three years. So um, it keeps people's skills fresh and relevant as well. So on the other side of that, okay, so you did a post, I think it was today that I noticed, which dovetails perfectly into our podcast interview, is about non-official orgs going around and selling the same types of training certifications. I'm myself, I'm getting about five of them a day. So can you talk a little bit more about what you're seeing, why this has become a thing and how people can look for stuff to avoid it as well? and what people can do about it to make sure that they're not obviously paying for things that aren't the true certified body. Sure. And, and we're, uh, you know, we're one of a number of different um, organisations that are going through very, very similar challenges. Um, and, and in my post, I alluded to the fact that, you know, IC Squared, there's a number of organisations out there saying that they're offering CISSP training, uh, ISARC, CompTIA, and, and, and some of the other folks, the Project Management Institute, those sorts of folks are also going through the same sorts of challenges. Obviously, there's, there's people out there that have realised that, you know, if I can offer a training course and, and train people to, to become certified, you know, I can make money out of it. Now, the, the challenge there is that a lot of the times they're using people who themselves are not certified. They're using materials that are not sanctioned. And they're making some really um, interesting claims around pass rate guarantees, exam vouchers, and a whole bunch of other things. The reality is that the only organisations that are actually duly qualified to be able to do this, this training is, is organisations that are authorised by these bodies, but we're regulated by ANSI, right? Mm-hmm. And the American National Standards Institute. And um, as a result of that, we actually have to follow a bunch of different rules and, and procedures that are internationally governed. And these organisations that are teaching the material aren't. And sadly, what's happening is that people uh, are being duped. They're going to do these courses. Mm-hmm. They don't learn the skills. They pay good money for it. Um, and then they come to us and actually say, oh, I did one of your courses and, you know, I failed. And, and, and because these organisations are really clever in terms of how they use legal devices, um, it's often very difficult to tell whether they're official or not. So my suggestion here is, is always do your research, reach out to the certification bodies such as ourselves and, and the others that I've mentioned, um, and potentially ask them, you know, who are the official training providers and, and, and work through them to be able to, to advise you. What I'm noticing, I feel like people are adding me on LinkedIn and then straight away I'm getting the message. Do you think they're fake profiles? Because to me, they look like a fake profile. I can't confirm if that's true. It's just that the mm. approach seems very the same and I, I completely ignore it, but I'm so glad that you pushed that out today because I'm getting so many of them and I could just imagine the people out there are getting the same, if not more than me. Yeah. So well, the, the, the irony is I'm being asked, uh, you know, by these people. So, so clearly there's some sort of uh, AI involved or, or some sort of scripting because I'm being asked by these people to do certifications, uh, both ours and others that I already mm. hold. <laughs> so they're clearly not, they're right. clearly not looking at my profile. So it's just, right. it's just um, yeah, LinkedIn. Spray, spam, spray and pray a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, from my perspective, what have you seen the change that has worked when it has come to people taking an interest in security, but also their desire to continuously upskill themselves as well? So they aren't potentially their skills atrophy in the next few years. Yeah. Look, the I think the biggest change has been that people are starting to explain to the regular non-cybersecurity people what this all involves and entails. And I do a fair bit of this day in and day out. Um, there was a story that I had. We, we had our, our annual conference in New Orleans last year, and mm-hmm. and I, I get away with it as an Australian uh, in New Orleans because there was a family in front of me that were trying to work out what we were as an organisation, never heard of us, and they, they didn't know what IC squared was. And I overheard them talk and, and I said, look, I said, I, I don't mean to be um, spying on your conversation or listening on your conversation, but I explained to them, I said, this is what we do um, and we're cybersecurity. And and the, the son who was there um, out of that family of four 
He said, oh, well, I'm, I'm doing IT at, at university. I'm starting next year. Fantastic. And, and I said, well, why don't I take up the conference? I'll save you some money. <laughs> you can walk in with me. Um, and I explained to, to that family what, what we did, cybersecurity generally. The daughter who was there, she, um, she was really amazed. And she said, oh, I didn't realize cybersecurity was so diverse and, and there were so many different uh, opportunities. I might even look into it. <laughs> right? So all of a sudden she realized that you know, her perceptions around cyber being hackers and you know, all that sort of stuff are not necessarily true. And when I left that family with, with my colleagues over, over there, I, um, I had the father chase me out. And he said to me, he said, Tony, I just wanted to say thank you. You've explained cybersecurity in terms that mean something to me. I don't even know how to turn a computer on. <laughs> but I now, I now at least understand what cybersecurity, you know, it, it is in, at a very theoretical high level. I now understand what you people do, right? And, and that's how we're going to get more people into the industry is by making it relatable. It's, you know, I, most of the time I, I call it, you know, dispelling spokes, you know, smoke, smoke and mirrors because, um, you know, we've created this amazing, you know, magical aura around this industry that like all industries, you do, you do training, you learn, you have experience. It, it, it's, it's not a, uh, it's not rocket science. You just need to understand where everything fits in and how to relate it to people and, and you, you'll affect change that way. And do you think that as a collective group over time, we'll be able to combat that problem? Because again, it's, there is that massive gap and people still find a way to confuse other people about what security means. Do you think it'll yeah. just be time when we'll sort of hit that parity where it's like, well, we've got enough people now, this is great. And we need to continuously ensure that we're upskilling each other to ensure mm. that we are combating threats as well. Yeah, but I mean, as time goes on, there's going to be new, new and different threats anyway. So as time moves on, there's going to be different areas of cybersecurity that develop, and they're going to need people. And there's going to be areas of cybersecurity that are going to they're going to start to dwindle, and they're going to need less people. And the example that I give, often um, controversial, is penetration testing, which is an area of, of huge interest and discussion. And, and people are always, you know, saying to me, "I want to be a pen tester." And I say to them, "I say, look, have you considered that pen testing is probably going to be one of the first jobs that gives way to AI. And it's going to be something that's going to be taken over by AI quicker than most other parts of cybersecurity because you can run an AI system and point at a server and do a penetration test. Do you need the human after that? Probably not. So um, I often encourage people who come to me and say, I want to be a pen tester. I say to them, say, well, have you considered other career options in cybersecurity because it might be worth your interest in investing in those. Um, so, so these things will change. The other example I use, particularly when I present, is, is if you look at um, property crime data uh, over the years, you realise if you go back to the 1960s or 70s, we had four to five times the rate of property crime that we do today. And the reason why that's dropped over time, even though we've got more people um, and, and there's less instances of crime, I'm, I'm talking about literally 80% less crime than there was you know, 50 years ago, is because we've invested in alarm systems and immobilisers and, and we also have knowledge of not leaving things around, not leaving the keys under the, the front door, right? So cybersecurity is a point today where we're probably just before the peak of, of the, the crime wave that we measured in the 1950s around property crime. And as, as, um, as time goes on, as skills develop and as awareness develop, that will drop. It's just inevitable, but that'll take a lot of work. Do you think as an industry we're prepared for, like you said, that over time things will become automated and your know, certain skills won't be required anymore in, in certain roles? Do you think as an industry we're ready to upskill and be prepared for what's on the horizon for this industry? Do you think that there's still a lot of room for improvement? Mm. I think that there is more room for improvement. I think that we generally do it pretty good. And uh, just by virtue of the fact that it's an industry that changes, you know, week by week, hour by hour almost. So we as professionals are geared towards change. We operate with that. So we're quite comfortable with that. But it is something that, that does take commitment. And, and this is part of the reason why, as I alluded to earlier with our certifications and, and others, 
you do need to keep on investing in education. Otherwise, your skills become very, uh, very dull very quickly. Right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so there is the element of having to continually learn and improve. And an example that I give is I, I took a month or two off um, between roles before I started ISC Squared. And I remember, you know, literally digitally detoxing for a good six to eight weeks. And I felt like I'd, I'd been away from the industry for five years, <laughs> you know, and that was just six weeks. So it's, it's just the nature of the beast. And, and this is what we're dealing with in this space. I'd like to move to the last part of our interview now, and I, because I'd be keen to get your thoughts on this, is I've noticed that there are lots of groups, meetups, events that are out there in our industry. I might be wrong, but I don't see these groups acting with any kind of unified voice or purpose. Mm. What would be your approach to getting these groups to talk to each other? Because after all, they have the same goals, and I believe that we're stronger together. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, I completely agree. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there, there are different uh, organisations, different associations who have their, their own agendas and their own their own purposes. And if you look at globally in, in terms of certifications, you know, we, we were the first to come up with the cybersecurity certifications because we were commissioned purely um, in order to do that. And, and a lot of those requirements came from the US government. And other organisations, you know, who were strong in IT followed suit. They saw this as an area of growth and they developed their own certifications. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. If we look at the associations, then you've got organisations that function as industry associations and you don't need to be qualified or certified to join those associations. And, and in Australia, we have ASA. You can join as a student. You can join as a completely non-certified professional as long as you're interested in cybersecurity. There's also a bunch of meetup groups and there's also a bunch of related technologies such as blockchain and IoT type groups. They are all working towards the same goal, but, you know, as, as human nature uh, goes they're all looking at pushing a, a specific item of agenda and yes it's very very difficult I'd, I'd love to say you know we could, we could all work together i think there's, there's potential for consolidation absolutely but it's hard to see how that's going to happen not sure <laughs> that's okay it's just a question i like to ask people to get their thoughts and their opinions on how we can help unify everyone so tony i really appreciate you taking the time to chat through your journey i really appreciate your insight on the isc squared and if people are interested how can they get in touch with you yeah, um, look, they can reach out to me through uh, LinkedIn, uh, Tony Veets is my name, or they can contact me via email or by phone. I'm more than happy to, to receive emails, that's fine. Okay, awesome. Well, Tony, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure that our listeners have gained a lot of insight about current things that you're doing in the market in terms of the ambassadorship stuff, as well as what you guys are doing as an organisation. So I really appreciate you taking the time. No worries. Chris, always pleasure to talk. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.